We are continuing now our quest into looking at Hashem in our lives. And uh, Baruch Hashem, we got some great emails this week. Some from the boys in the Haligi Yeshiva. Uh, who noticed the Rabbi Hashem in their lives. I think this is what it's all about. It's what it's all about. The more stories we hear, I think the more it's machazik, the idea of, oh my gosh, that's right. This is because of Hashem, that because of Hashem, that and because of that. It's just amazing how things work that way. So that's the reason why we do this. If somebody asks, like, what is this, the stories? Like, seriously, I need to come here just to hear stories. The answer is, first of all, it's recognizing the Rabbi Hashem in your life. And also... By hearing these stories, you start to realize and you start to focus on that which happens in your life, which, as we said many times, can, can change the whole perspective. And I beg of the Olam to start your own notebook, start your own page on your phone, whatever it is, of noticing and writing down when the Guru does things that you see clearly. Oh, of course, Baruch does everything. But when you see clearly that it ends up like, oh, wow, that's amazing, write that down. That's amazing. I'll just tell you a couple of things before we start with the emails. Anna Choshva Yid sitting at my house Friday night, a Yid from Lakewood, came here for like Boimes, he came to eat by me, and um, he told me a Misa. I don't remember all the details, but it's a beautiful Misa. And he says to me like this. He says he knows a Kolon Yungaman that put in an offer for a house in Jackson. Apparently, all the house prices are going up around the world, in America, in Lakewood, wherever you are. And he wanted to get this house. Prices are going up. He wanted a Chaparain. So he put in whatever he could manage. It wasn't the greatest offer in the world. He put in this offer for this house in Jackson. But as he put in the offer, he said, there's no way they're going to take my offer. Like anyone normal can, if, can afford way more than I'm offering for this house. It's a great house, land, it's in a great location, whatever it is. I'll put in the offer because I have to understand this, right? So he puts in, uh, he puts in the offer and he waits and he waits and he waits and eventually he kind of gives up. So to get it. Obviously not, I've got to start moving on the process, finding somewhere else till he gets that phone call. He gets a phone call from wherever it was that's in charge of selling the house and they said, Mr. Cohen, I want to tell you that your offer has been accepted. He says, really? My offer was accepted? No way. You're telling me you didn't get any higher offers than mine? He said, actually, we got very high offers, including one offer for $100,000, more than what you were offering. So he said, I don't understand. So why was it that you accepted my offer? So listen to what he said. He said, this house was owned by um, a couple, Goyim, non-Jewish people, who were getting divorced, sticky divorce. And the court case made up of sack that whatever they make money of the house, the husband has to give half of it to his wife. So he took the lowest offer possible to make sure that he wouldn't give this to his wife. The Mela is, his offer was accepted. Well, I say, that's, that is, that is the Adashem. That is, that is absolutely Mayuridik. And I want to tell you another Gavaldiga Maisa, which I read in, um, in a book. And it goes like this. There was a printing press. Um, a, a non-Jewish printing press that prints books and gets manuscripts from people like 10, 20 every single week from these hopeful writers that want to really hope to try and make it in life and become rich and become famous and whatever. And he tries to go through them, whatever it was. There was one time uh, someone who he actually knew sent in a manuscript and he put it in like a nice gift box, I guess thinking that the owner of the printing press will look at it and maybe take more notice of it. Put it in this nice gift box. And, you know, the fellow put it on the, uh, put it on his desk. And, uh, he never managed to look at it. And one night he says, you know something? This guy keeps calling me once a week. If you checked it, you checked it. I haven't had time. I'm gonna take it home. So he takes this gift box back with the manuscript, puts it in the side of his car, and he goes, uh, he goes wherever he goes to travel home. 
He puts it in the front seat of his car and he, and he stops at one of the local restaurants on the way home in order to eat something before he makes it home. He stops there a couple of hours, he eats something before he comes back. He comes back to his car and he sees that the window is smashed, that the radio has been taken, and this gift box is gone. Now, the radio, he says, big deal, I can figure out the radio, I'll get a new radio, it's not the end of the world. Over the gift box, obviously someone thought that there was something in in there, he took it away. Now, he remembered that the guy who wrote the manuscript said, be really, really careful, it's the only copy that I have. There is no other copy, we're talking about before computers and files and backups and everything. This was the only copy of the manuscript that he had. How is he going to break it to the guy who wrote it, that he has lost the manuscript, the only one that's existing? He didn't know what to do. For a couple of days, he was hemming and hurrying, what should I do, what should I do, till he gets that weekly phone call from the guy who wrote it, saying, you know, about to say, no, did you check it? But he doesn't say, no, did you check it? He said to the guy, you know, it's a bissel of chutzpah, he says. He said, but it's a bissel of chutzpah. That I understand you didn't like my manuscript. I understand you didn't like it. You didn't want to print it. You think it was printworthy. Fine. But to throw it in my backyard, I think that's a bit of a chutzpah. This guy couldn't believe it. Out of all the places in the world that this gunner took it from the front seat of his car, obviously opened it, saw it's a bunch of papers, and threw it in somebody's backyard in America, was this guy who wrote it's backyard, which is absolutely mind-boggling. I'll tell you another one as well. The guy was delivering the post, and he comes to the house, and he sees the lady of the house is just standing there and standing there, and he's like, is everything Okay. She says, oh, I forgot my key inside. The neighbor who has the spare key is not there. He's gone away for a couple of days vacation. And my husband who has got another key is on a, some kind of work, whatever it is, in the middle of who knows where. I'm stuck without a key. What can I do? So he says, listen, the only thing you can do is call a locksmith. Call a locksmith. Go figure it out. They'll open up the key. They'll open up the door and everything will be fine. She said, yeah, I guess it's a lot of money. I'm trying to think of other options. Whatever. He says, listen, man, I can't spend a lot of time here. Here's the mail for today. Hopefully there's a letter in there that maybe will give you a bit of chizuk, that will enlighten you, that will uplift you. All right, I've got nothing better to do than check the mail, right? So she checks the mail, and she opens it, and all of a sudden the key falls out. And she reads the letter, and it says, I came to stay in your house a couple of weeks ago. If you remember, you gave me a spare key, and I forgot to take it with me. I forgot to give it to you before I left. So here's the key right now. Unbelievable acts of pure divine providence and ashkocha protis in the world. Rabbi say, email came in like this. Thank you very much for showing me special ashkocha protis. Something small I experienced. Again, it's something small things. My wine opener broke a few weeks ago, and I completely forgot about it. But this week, I went to the store. And I bought a few bottles of wine, and the guy in the store gave me a free one without even asking, as I had completely, completely forgotten about it. Again, it's a tiny thing, but there's an act of Ashkaha protest that the Abunjumans do that gave you a wine opener. Another one. Okay, I would like to share two stories. Uh, one long summer Shabbos afternoon, I went for a sleep after the Sudan Shabbos, knowing that Mincha was at 7 o'clock. I asked the Rabbi Shalom. Before I went to sleep, please wake me up at 5 o'clock so I could learn for a few hours before Mincha, as one does. I woke up and I saw the clock, precisely 5 o'clock, exactly two hours before Mincha. I wouldn't have minded if 10 minutes before, 10 minutes after, over the Rabbani Shon waking me up at exactly 5 o'clock. I felt like an extra kiss from the Rabbani Shon reminding me that he is always listening. The second story, a little more dramatic. One year, the yeshiva gave us off for Shabbos Hanukkah. Why? Anyway, so myself and about eight other guys rented an apartment in Netanya for Shabbos. After our meal on a Friday night, we went for a walk on the promenade that overlooks the beach. We passed by a pier which stretched out towards the ocean and was probably about 70 feet above the beachside road below. We began strolling onto the pier, and as we did so, 
a shadowy figure who had been standing at the end of the pier looking out towards the ocean, starting to, started to climb over the gate at the end of the pier, dangling above the drop to the hard road about 70 feet below. We ran towards him, grabbed his arm and managed to pull him back to safety before he could attempt to take his life. We found people who were there, were able to help him and continued our walk. It wasn't until later that night we realized that Shkocha protest of this story. Our original plan was to spend Shabbos in a different apartment that was not even in the Tanya. We sat around our apartment for a while after we finished our meal, and then we spoke to a random guy that we met on the street for a while. The Rabbanshom orchestrated that we'll be exactly at the right place, exactly at the right time, so we can have the source of saving a life. That's unbelievable, Rabbi said. Let's move on. Um, another email here. Shalom Aleichem, I live in Lakewood and often work in New York. A few years ago, I haven't read this one, by the way. A few years ago, my friend was telling me I should start listening to Shalom Atoni time during my travels. However, it's not my type of thing to do. But after a little nudging, I listened and someone came across one of your halacha Shalom has been a listener ever since. I want to thank you for helping me getting closer to the Rabbani in many ways. While that in itself... No, no. I haven't read this. While... While that in itself is enough of a shkocha, that is not the story I'm writing about. I am an accountant, and the following happened to my client. However, as you will see, I was involved and got permission to send it in. When COVID shut down businesses, almost practically everything else, the U.S. government decided to fund businesses affected by the pandemic with something called PPP loan. And if used for certain businesses' expenses, the so-called loan would be forgiven and quickly became referred to as free money. This grant saved many businesses and individuals. One of my clients, who is what they call a self-employed individual as a musician, was naturally affected with a lack of simchas. After going back and forth with the bank, he finally got approved for $11,000, which is a lot of money for someone out of work and trying to support a family, and was told to wait for the follow-up email with instructions of how to proceed. After a couple of months, he called me to see if it's normal that he hasn't yet received any money. I called the banker, and was told that she hadn't sent the documents to be signed. However, he didn't sign. Um, no, she sent the documents to be signed. However, he didn't sign, and they pulled the application to make matters worse. The program was no longer available. My client had been waiting for the email, but for some reason he missed that one. He didn't understand how that can happen, but he was not disappointed at all and told me if that's what Hashem, he didn't want me to have the money. I guess it's the best thing. A few months later, they reopened a new round of this program, However, they changed certain credentials, and based on the new law, he was now qualified for $20,000 instead of only eleven. We applied for both rounds right away, and he received both of them, and because he somehow deleted the one email he was waiting, he received additional $9,000. I was most impressed with him. Even at the time he appeared to have lost eleven, he understood it was meant to be. You may not want to hear more from me, but I cannot resist. Just yesterday, my 12-year-old son, who doesn't know anything about the current shit, Oh, he does know your quick Erev Shabbos clips. Okay. He came, he came from Yeshiva. Came from Yeshiva all excited to tell me his Ashkocha story of the day. The two, uh, the two sixth grade classes of his Yeshiva were taken to the nearby park by their teachers. A few boys from the other class left a little bit early to reserve the so-called better field. About 15 minutes into their baseball game, the other class was kicked off the field by a league that had the rights to that field and was placed off to decide on a makeshift field. He came in and started stating proudly how it doesn't help not to do the right thing. It's all up to Hashem. But by side, we see time and time again that Ashkocha protests in the world. 
Let's think in our lives. Let's concentrate on everything the Rabbanisham does for us. Little things, small things, huge, massive, huge things. The Rabbanisham orchestrates our life, orchestrates everything that goes on. The more we think about it, the more we have gratitude and understand how the Rabbanisham runs our life. And the Rabbanisham should always make sure that we see his hand in everything we do. Have a wonderful day.